Welcome to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel, where you will receive the essential tools to take your faith to the next level. I am your host, Brian Ratliff, and I currently pastor Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. Here is the latest message preached from one of our services. Grab your Bible, pen, notepad, and get ready to jumpstart your faith. Somebody has once well said, Adversity does not build character, it reveals it. One article written sometime back speaks to us in addition to that statement. And they say, this is never truer than when disaster strikes. In times of great misfortune and even catastrophe, there are often only a few people who have the strength and courage to go above and beyond to help others survive. Many tragedies have led to stories of great sacrifice as people have shown immense bravery to save the lives of others. In 2001, we read of a great sacrifice by the name of Benjamin Clark. You see, Benjamin Clark was not a firefighter or a police officer during the tragic events of September 11th. He was simply working as a chef in the kitchen preparing meals for those who resided on the 96th floor of the South Tower in New York City. When the plane hit the building, he didn't try to escape the disaster himself. Instead, he took the steps to guide all those around him to safety. It is reported that the former Marine ensured that everyone in his department, as well as on the entire 96th floor, evacuated the building immediately. And following this tragic event, One official credited Benjamin Clark with saving hundreds of lives that day. For example, as they were traveling down the staircases of that World Trade Center, they entered into the 78th floor where he would find a lady with a wheelchair and escort her to safety. Despite his undeniable heroic efforts, unfortunately, Benjamin Clark did not survive. It's interesting, when we think of sacrifice, we think of, you know, buying coffee for somebody at Starbucks. We think of buying somebody's lunch who's behind us in the drive-thru at Chick-fil-A. We think about giving up soda for Lent as a sacrifice. We think about selling our used car instead for $1,000 to somebody else for $800. But my friends, that is not sacrifice. In fact, by the the term sacrifice's own definition, sacrifice is laying one's life down for somebody else. And we see that in, in Benjamin Clark's life. We saw that, and we could observe that in countless other individuals throughout history. But I submit to you today that the greatest sacrifice was not made by Benjamin Clark on September 11, 2001. The greatest sacrifice that was ever made in history was on the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago when Jesus paid our sin debt. And today as we come to Hebrews chapter 9, we understand that the writer of Hebrews has an emphasis here on a superior sacrifice than any other sacrifice that was ever made in the Old Testament or in our day or in the future that we'll ever see. 
So today as we come to this chapter, these last several verses of Hebrews chapter 9, really the thought is the superior sacrifice. And that is the thought I want to relate to you today as my sermon title, The Superior Sacrifice. And if I could elaborate with a key central statement that I want you to walk away with today, it would be this thought. In fact, I I could summarize this whole chapter, really I could summarize the whole book of Hebrews with this statement. The greatest sacrifice throughout history is when Jesus died on Calvary. The greatest sacrifice throughout history is when Jesus died on Calvary. Today, as we seek to travel through these several verses, I want to relate to you three thoughts about sacrifice, about this passage, and how it all relates to you and to me. The first thought of three I want to relate to you comes from verses 15 through 17, and it's this thought. The New Testament requires the sacrificial death of Christ. The New Testament requires the sacrificial death of Christ. You see, without the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, who is foreordained before the foundation of the world to do that, we would still be underneath the old covenant. And we understand that the first 14 verses of chapter 9, as we looked at last week, is all about how the New Covenant or the New Testament is far superior than the Old Covenant or the Old Testament because Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament predictions about the Messiah and took all of those laws that they had to fulfill through those rituals and sacrifices and there nailed it to the cross. And so we see that that the New Testament is superior than the Old Testament. And now the writer of Hebrews is transitioning about not just the New Covenant, but but what took place to get us into the New Testament. And that is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So the New Testament requires the sacrificial death of Christ. Look at verse number 15 in the Bible. It says here, and for this cause... He is the mediator. Now, this term mediator is no stranger to us throughout the New Testament. This is a term that is used to to relay to us the simple truth that God gave us a go-between between between he himself and humanity, and that is Jesus Christ, an intercessor. That is, a mediator is somebody who's going to take two opposing parties and reconcile them back together. And we understand that mankind fell in the Garden of Eden back in Genesis chapter 3 because of our sin. Because of our sin, we are not allowed into the presence of God. And the only way to, to, grant, to be granted access back into the presence of Jesus Christ is through a personal relationship with Jesus. And we see that is why he came, to break down the wall of partition of our sin debt between God Almighty himself. And here we see that he is labeled as the mediator between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Notice it speaks here that by the means of death, for the redemption, we understand that the word redemption, as we looked at last time and previous times, that it gives this idea of of buying somebody out from the slave markets, And we understand that we're a slave to sin, and Jesus came to redeem us from the bondage of the sin that we have in our lives. And here he says specifically about the transgressions that were underneath the Old Covenant, how that the First Testament, the Bible says here that it was just looking to the new, and that they were temporarily receiving forgiveness of sins. But then the Bible goes on to say, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Have you ever inherited anything? Maybe some of you have inherited a a house. Maybe you've inherited a nice wad of cash. Maybe you've inherited a property. Or maybe you've inherited a nice car. 
Well, I want you to know this, that any inheritance that you ever receive from this moment forward throughout the rest of your life does not compare to the inheritance that Jesus has given us through himself, and that is salvation. And it's interesting that this inheritance, an inheritance, an earthly inheritance will one day cease to exist. But the eternal inheritance that God has given us, it will never cease. We'll get to experience it forever and ever and ever and ever. That, that cash will one day be spent. That house will one day wax old. That car will one day not be able to run again. But I'm thankful today that through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, my inheritance of eternal life, your inheritance of eternal life, it will never wax old and go away. Verse number 16, we see the Bible begins to speak about this idea of the last will and testament of God. We understand what a last will and testament is. We understand what a will is. That is, somebody takes a document and they write out their last will and testament, what they are going to will to their family members or friends or organizations, and they, they specifically designate different areas of their estate or whatever they own to somebody or something else. And here we see the Bible says for where a testament is, that is, one commentator labeled this section of Scripture as the last will and testament of God. And so here he says that where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. Let's imagine here that I am going to will all of you one brick of my house. You struck rich. I know you're now going to be a millionaire. Just kidding. <laughs> Nowhere close. But let's suppose I willed every one of you a brick from my home after I die. And, you get, and I send you all a copy of my last will and testament, and you received it in the mail, and you, you go to the courthouse, and you demand to the courthouse and to the judges that you are entitled to your brick right now. And they say, well, there's one a document that we need. We need for you to bring Brian Ratliff's death certificate, and then we will make sure you can have that brick that you have been willed. The only problem is I'm still alive. So you therefore can't receive that brick. That's right. Don't worry about it. It wasn't worth much anyway, so don't worry. <laughs> but here we see that, that in order for us to be beneficiaries of God's last will and testament, the testator has to die. So who is the testator? That is Jesus Christ. He came to, to bridge the gap between the Old Testament into the New Testament. And here we see in verse number 17, it says, For a testament is a force after men are dead. That means it is played in effect once that person enters the doorway of death. And then it says, Otherwise, there is no strength at all while the testator lives. So we see in these first few verses, the New Testament requires the sacrificial death of Christ. Why did he come? Well, he came so that we could enter into God's predicted promises about the new promises that he'd make. And we see he began that with the prophet Jeremiah in a previous passage of Scripture. Don't forget, the greatest sacrifice throughout history is when Jesus died on Calvary. There is no superior sacrifice than the one he made 2,000 years ago. But now may I draw your attention to, to the next section here. Verses 18 down to verse 26. I want to relate to you a second thought about the sacrifice of Christ and about how it all is, is playing in effect and how it all applies to us today. In fact, in these next few verses, we see a great pivotal doctrine of the Christian faith. And it's this. Complete forgiveness requires the shed blood 
of Christ. Complete forgiveness requires the shed blood of Christ. Somebody has once asked, why is the New Testament, why is the Bible so bloody? Why were the sacrifices in the Old Testament, why do they require blood? What's so special about blood? Verse 18, the Bible says, Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. Remember, in the Old Testament, there they built those altars. There they took those turtle doves and the pigeons. And there they took those little ewe lambs. And there they sacrificed them on the altar. And there they sprinkled the blood. And then the, the, the high priest, as we'll, we'll, we'll see again, the writer of Hebrews reminds us again, that the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year and there sprinkled the blood on top of the mercy seat to atone for his sins and the entire congregation of people's Israel's sins every single year. And so we see that the blood in the Old Testament was a symbol and picture to point us to another blood that would be required. And, and understand this. Now, now maybe, you, maybe you, you, you have a Discover credit card like me, or maybe you have a Chase Freedom credit card like me, or, or maybe, maybe you don't use a credit card at all. Hats off to you. I want my credit card rewards. I want my free cash, so I use them. But I understand that when I take, if I go to Kroger and I go and I buy my groceries and I swipe this Discover credit card, I understand that I'm not paying for it right then. Somebody else has paid for it and I owe that person later. And so in the Old Testament, when they had these sacrifices, they understood that that was not a sacrifice that would, that would forgive them of their sins completely. It was temporarily doing it until the greatest sacrifice would come, Jesus. And his sacrifice came. And his sacrifice came so that his blood could be spilt for the sins of humanity. And here the Bible begins to elaborate here in verse number 19. The Bible goes back, the writer of Hebrews goes back to Exodus chapter 25, we believe. And here the writer of Hebrews gives us a little extra New Testament revelation that the Old Testament doesn't give us and gives specific details about when God spoke to Moses and Moses brought the precepts or the law of God to the congregation of Israel about the blood of calves and of goats and with hyssop and sprinkled both on the book and all the people. And they're saying, here it is, it says this, this is the blood of the Testament which God has enjoined unto you. Now, we understand that a testament is, a, is like a contract or a covenantal promise. And so God made these covenantal promises back in the Old Testament, and he also made a promise in Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, about how his Messiah would come and die for the sins of humanity. And here, we understand that as we read verse 20, I begin to think about communion I begin to think about how we have the Lord's table and how we, we take the wafer or the bread and how it's not the literal physical body of Jesus Christ. It's a representation of the body that was broken for us 2,000 years ago. And the juice or the wine, if you will, represents the blood that Jesus would spill on the cross. And here we see that the whole Old Testament, the sacrificial system, was pointing the Old Testament believer to the fact that one day God would send himself clothed in humanity to shed his precious blood so that he could wipe away our sins. I find it interesting that God takes the, the hardest thing for man to clean in the washing machine, and that is blood. And he takes his own blood of his son 
to wipe away our sins. I know you know the verse, but the Bible says in this book, the Old Testament says that God is able to take our sins and cast them as far as the east is from the west. We read in chapter 8, verse number thir- verse number 12, that God is merciful to, to our unrighteousness and to our sins and our iniquities so we remember no more. God is able to take our sins and he's able to throw it to the bottom of the ocean, as Micah said, and he's also able to wipe away our sin debt for good. All done through the work of Christ on the cross. And if that won't get you into the spirit of thanksgiving, I don't know what will. It says in verse 22, or verse, excuse me, verse 21, Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. That is describing some of the details in the Old Testament law. Then verse 22, it says, And almost all things are by the law purged. This word purge, it means to cleanse and to purify. The only way our souls can be cleansed and purified is through the work of Christ. And it says, with blood. And then check it out now. Verse 22. Really, the writer of Hebrews emphasizes why it had to be blood. And he says, without shedding of blood is no remission. Now, remission here, it's not, it's not referring to like, oh, I have cancer, but now I'm in remission of cancer. It's not necessarily what it's meaning here. This term remission, it literally means to pardon. It means to deliver. It means to give one liberty. It means to obtain forgiveness. And it literally means remission. So I guess, in a sense, if you ever have been diagnosed with cancer and you've been in remission from it, you have been delivered from that disease. And here we have a a different kind of disease. It's called sin. And the only way to be in remission of that disease is through the work of Christ on the cross. I have great liberty now. I have great pardoning. I have great deliverance. I have forgiveness because of Jesus on the cross. John said, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise God, he's able to do that. Listen, if you're trying to to go through emission of sins through water baptism, it's just not going to cut out. It's not going to happen. If you're trying to, to, to experience remission from sins through to becoming a member of some church here in this area, it's just not going to work out for you. I'm sorry. If you're, gonna, if you're seeking remission from sins and total forgiveness through, through giving a certain amount of percentage of your income to the Lord's work, I'm sorry, my friend. That's not how you obtain forgiveness. Forgiveness is obtained by saying, God, I'm sorry, I'm a sinner. Forgive me of my sins. That's the only way, through what Jesus has done on the cross. The Bible goes on to say in verse 23, It was therefore necessary that the patterns of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifice than these. And then look at verse 24. It says, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands. In other words, he's going back to the holy of holies. Remember the tabernacle we talked about last time or, or one time before, how they had the tabernacle, and then it had a, had, a, had a bigger room, and then it had an inner room, and in the inner room was the holy of holies that only the high priest could go into. And he's saying, hey, this is, Jesus didn't enter in a place that was made by the, man, the hands of mankind. He says, which are figures. In other words, it's type, it's a picture of things to come. And then it says, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And that ties back into verse 15, where Jesus is our intercessor and our mediator. He is our go-between. And then verse 25 says, I like this verse. It says, nor yet that he should offer himself often. 
Remember, the high priest went every single year from the time period of, of Aaron all the way to the time period of Caiaphas in the days of Jesus. Every single year they marched into that place. Every single year they marched in and took the blood and sprinkled it on that mercy seat. But Jesus came to do away with that system. And instead of going in every single year, he came and did it once. And it was so sufficient that we don't have to do it anymore. And then in verse 28, it says, For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world has he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The usage of the term put away, a lot of times throughout Scripture, it's, it's in the context of divorce. And I love this, this aspect here about how God is able to give us the capability of divorcing our sin. He's able to do it. That is, he is able to, to clothe us with his righteousness so we can divorce our unrighteousness. And it's only able to be done through him. So listen, complete forgiveness requires the shed blood of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. The New Testament requires the sacrificial death of Christ. And remember, remember this, the greatest sacrifice throughout all history is when Jesus died on Calvary. There is no greater, there is no superior sacrifice than Christ. And that leads me to the last two verses. Probably if there's any verse in chapter 9 that you have heard, it is verse 27. And this is the third and final thought I want to relate to, relate to you. Escaping judgment requires the perfect substitute of Christ. Escaping judgment requires the perfect substitute of Christ. Look at verse number 27. In verse 27, we are face to face with the reality of death. That at some point, we are going to have our appointment with the hour and the moment of death. I can't escape it. You can't escape it. No man, woman, boy, or girl, no matter how rich, how famous, how powerful, or prestige, or how poor and lowly. Nobody is able to escape that hour and that appointment. Here the Bible says that because, that because Adam and Eve chose to sin in the Garden, of Eden, the Garden of Eden, death has passed upon all of us and so is sin. And because sin has passed down through generation and generation and generation, so has death, so has disease, so has destruction, so has all the turmoil of this world. All because of one man's choice of disobedience. And here it says, and it has appointed unto men once to die. I like what one preacher said. He said, if, you, if you're born once, you'll die twice. But if you're born twice, you'll die once. In other words, he says that unless you're born again, you cannot escape the second death. And then he says, after that process of death, he says, there is the hour of judgment. I'm afraid that most people in our world fear death more than fearing standing before God. Today, uh, we understand that a lot of people, as Brother Andrews has so faithfully reminded me, that we a lot of times neglect speaking about the judgment of God in the days to come. So, Brother Andrews, this one might just be for you. I want you to understand this, that the Bible teaches a coming judgment. 
It teaches us the coming judgment that Jesus is going to return. He's going to, he's going to set foot on the Mount of Olives and the Antichrist and the tribulation. If you think 2020 is bad, you wait to the tribulational period in the days to come when the Antichrist is, is literally like Adolf Hitler ruling and reigning this entire world and globe. And he, and he, con, he conspires along with Satan. In fact, the Bible says Satan comes in and dwells him and that he, 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 he somehow he, he deceives the entire world and, and, and brings in an entire army and the only reason why he brings an entire army is so that he can overthrow and destroy God. And Jesus comes and he shows the Antichrist just how powerful and omnipotent he himself is. And he brings judgment to this earth. But then there's another judgment the Bible speaks of. There's a judgment seat of Christ where every Christian will stand before God. We'll give an account for how we have lived and conducted our lives as a Christian. And there will be rewarded or not rewarded accordingly. Paul writes about this in the New Testament. And then there's another judgment. There's what we call the great white throne judgment. You see... For all those who know Christ as their Savior, they will go to the judgment seat of Christ. Not to be held accountable for their sins, but to be rewarded based upon how they served Christ in their new life in Him. However, those who do not have Christ as their Savior will stand before God Almighty at the great white throne judgment. And there the Bible speaks about the agony, the great torments of a place called eternal fire or hell or the lake of fire. In fact, Jesus spoke about this. Jesus spoke about how hell was a place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus spoke about how cruel this place is going to be for all those who reject Christ. And I know, the, I know the question is this, why would a loving God send humanity to hell? Well, here's the answer. In Matthew chapter 25, we, we clearly see that Jesus said hell was prepared for Satan and his angels. Hell was never created for you or me or any other human being. But God cannot allow sin into heaven. And until somebody repents of their sin and, re, and asks Christ for forgiveness, he cannot allow them into heaven. And so they are imposing God's judgment upon themselves. So here's a, a few ideas of what hell is. Some, some say that hell, there is no hell. And that there's this idea of universalism, that everybody's going to go to heaven. No matter how they lived or what religion or whatever, they're all going to heaven. The Bible says, in fact, Jesus said, I'm the only way to heaven. Jesus said, if you try to get to heaven any other way, you're a thief and a robber. And the Bible says, in fact, in Revelation 20, we'll talk about it, how there is a place of eternal torment. Then there's this idea of annihilationism. And that is that when somebody dies who goes to hell, hell is not a place of eternal agony and torment, but it's a place where you go to and you burn up and you cease to exist. The only problem with that is simply this, is that the same term eternal is used for eternal death and eternal life. And so check it out now. When Jesus says in Matthew 25, depart from me into everlasting fire, that is the same term that John uses in John chapter 3 in verse 16, in fact, quoting Jesus, and he says, everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The same term everlasting means forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. You get the picture. 
Okay? So if we say that, 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 that the, the death part is temporary, we have to say the life part is temporary too. So that those who go, if, the, if we subscribe to annihilationism, we have to say that hell is a place where you burn up and cease to exist. And the same thing with heaven that you go to and you will one day cease to exist after you live out your life in the afterlife. However, the Bible says that you will live forever one way or the other. So annihilationism is not the answer. Then there's this idea of purgatory where there's a place of temporary holding where you can one day work your way out of the judgment of God. The Bible is very clear, my friends. In fact, I would believe purgatory if I read it somewhere in the scriptures. It's nowhere to be found. In fact, the only place you find it is you find it alluded to in the Apocrypha, but that is not scripture. Nowhere in the New Testament, nowhere in the Old Testament. So what is hell? According to the words of Jesus Christ, according to the entirety of the New Testament and the Old Testament, hell is a place of literal, eternal punishment. And if you don't believe me, hear the words of Revelation chapter 20. This is when the unbelievers are standing before Christ or God Almighty at the great right throne judgment. The books are open, and then the Bible says that the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man according to their works. And then verse 14, it says this, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Verse 27 of Hebrews chapter 9 says, And it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment. Mankind fears death more than they fear the judgment of God. And I submit to you that death, if for those who don't know Christ, death will be heaven compared to the eternal judgment of God. And you say, where's the love of God in all this? The love of God is found 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ came to the cross and he paid our ransom so that all we have to do is say, God, forgive me. I accept your sacrifice. I accept your substitutionary atonement on Calvary. Verse 28, the Bible says, so Christ was once offered to bear sins because there is a future judgment to come. That's why Jesus came. He was offered to bear the sins of many. Now, now a lot of discussion has been made about this term many. Throughout the New Testament, you see that sometimes the word all and many are used interchangeably. And all the writer of Hebrews is simply saying is this, that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for the entirety of the sins of humanity. So our lies, our, our thefts, our adulteries, our every sin you could ever imagine, Jesus nailed it to the cross. And it says, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. In Matthew 27, we read a unique scene in the life of a handful of characters. Pilate, Jesus, and Barabbas, and a mob of Jewish people. And there, when, when Barabbas was was there in jail, in a holding place, before being executed for his crimes. We see that Pilate asked the people there, the mob, which were Jewish. He says, who will I release to you? And they shouted out, Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. And then, I'm sure Barabbas is hearing his name. 
And then the next shout he hears from the congregation there is, let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. So I'm sure if I was Barabbas, I'd be saying, wow, my death sentence is going to be the crucifixion. By the way, the crucifixion is the most gruesome execution throughout all history. Nothing else compares. And we understand as we read Matthew 27 that Pilate says there, it's your custom that one is released. And who would you have me release, Jesus or Barabbas? And they say, well, release Barabbas. And then they say, what, what would you do with Jesus? He's, he's innocent. He hasn't done anything wrong. And they say, let him be crucified. So when Barabbas came forward and they said, hey, you're free, I'm sure he was totally shocked. And there he literally watched the Son of God, Jesus, go to the cross. And Barabbas was supposed to be on the cross. And there, his substitute was Christ. I want you to know this, that I should be on that cross. You should be on that cross. Every man, woman, boy, or girl that's ever lived should be on that cross. But Jesus, in his grace and, and love and mercy, he took my punishment. He took my he took the judgment of God that I would receive. And there on the cross, it was in that moment that the love and mercy and grace of God collided with the wrath of God so that Jesus experienced the torments and agony of hell so that we would not have to experience it. So that's why I believe Jesus' sacrifice is far superior than anything in the Old Testament. All it did was point to us to that great sacrifice and understand this, that as noble of a cause as, as our military men have laid down their ultimate price of life so that we could live in this wonderful nation, as wonderful of a cause that, that Benjamin Clark laid down his life to help save those during the tragic events of September 11th, and we could go cause after cause after cause, it does not compare to the sacrifice Jesus made 2,000 years ago. My question for you is simply this. Are you going to escape the judgment that is to come? Is Jesus Christ your substitution? Have you received God's forgiveness for your sins? Have you accepted his death and resurrection? And have you made him your Lord and Savior? The greatest sacrifice throughout history is when Jesus died on Calvary. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel. As a token of my appreciation for you listening today, I would like to give you my free ebook devotional called Jumpstart Your Faith, 30 Days to a Renewed Faith in Christ. Just go to www.pastorbrianratliff.com to download it. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast channel to listen to more messages like today's. And if these messages have been helpful to you, please leave a review. If I could be of any help in your spiritual walk, please let me know by emailing me at pastorbrianratliff at yahoo.com. And one last thing, if you're in Roanoke, please consider joining us for one of our worship services at Clearbrook Baptist Church. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you and have a great week.